in the last two sermons from Mark's Gospel, we have focused on ministry in a culture of unbelief. In Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we learned about the difficulty of ministry in a culture of unbelief. We talked about how the nature of unbelief itself makes it difficult for ministry. In Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, we learned some principles for doing ministry in a culture of unbelief. This morning, we come to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. The title of the message this morning is The Sobering Realities of Ministry in a Culture of Unbelief. Here's the truth. When we as God's people seek to penetrate an unbelieving culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be prepared to face some sobering realities. Please stand and let's read God's word together. Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. For his name had become well known. And the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Please be seated. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, now we, we ask, Lord, that you would take this word which we have read 
and teach us, God, what it is we need to know. Let the Word of God from the page become alive and real in our minds and hearts. Oh God, please, give us ears to hear, hearts and minds that would receive the truth of God. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We saw last Sunday in Mark chapter 6, verses 7-13, through 13, the disciples are sent out on their very first ministry tour on their own without Jesus with them. Well, down in chapter 30 of this same chapter, we see them return from their ministry and report to Jesus all that they did and said. Something interesting happens though. The record of them being sent is in verses 7 to 13. They return at verse 30. But in between them going and returning, we're told this story of John the Baptist and his execution. Here's the question. Why would Mark interrupt the story about the disciples going on their ministry and then returning with this story about John. Why wouldn't he just tell us the disciples went on their ministry and they came back and then tell us the story about John's execution? Why did he put it right in the middle of this account of the disciples' ministry? There's a very important reason why. As the disciples go out, he tells this story of John and his execution as a sobering reminder of the realities that face those who go out and do ministry in a culture of unbelief. He says, here are the disciples going out in ministry. And oh, by the way, this is the kind of things you can expect to face when you go out in ministry. The same kind of things that John the Baptist faced. The question we're going to answer this morning is this. What must we be prepared to face when we engage an unbelieving culture with the gospel? What must we be prepared to face when we engage an unbelieving culture with the gospel? The scripture we've read this morning answers that question with three sobering realities. And here's the first one. Be prepared to face confusion about Jesus. We see this in verses 14 and 15. It talks of King Herod. The Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas. He's the governor of the land of Galilee and Perea. He technically isn't a king, although he was referred to as King Herod. Now, this is the Herod who is the son of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? Herod the Great is the one who, when he heard the wise men report that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, you remember what he did? He sent and had all the boys, two years old and under, around Bethlehem slaughtered. That's Herod the Great. This Herod we're reading about this morning is his son, Herod Antipas. Herod has gotten word about Jesus, it says in verse 14. He's heard about the teachings of Jesus and the power that Jesus has demonstrated through these miracles. 
But exactly who this Jesus is is a matter of debate among the people. People have differing views about Jesus. Mark gives us three different views that people have about who this Jesus is. Some people thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Verse 14. People were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now, it's not likely that they believed Jesus was physically John the Baptist raised from the dead. And here's why. Because everybody knows that Jesus and John were alive at the same time. So likely what they are saying when they believe that Jesus is John resurrected, they mean that the spirit of John the Baptist who has died, his spirit has come to rest on Jesus. It's similar to the way in the Old Testament we see it told that Elijah's spirit, after Elijah went up in the cloud, his spirit came on Elisha. 2 Kings 2.15 When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, they said. They came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. So likely what they meant was, since John the Baptist has died, now his spirit has come to rest on Jesus, and that's how they explained Jesus' power to work miracles. They said Jesus is one who is essentially possessed Controlled by the spirit of John the Baptist. But other people thought Jesus was Elijah. Verse 15. Others were saying he is Elijah. Now this view is based on an Old Testament scripture, Malachi, verses, uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, here's a prophecy from the Old Testament that before the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God, that Elijah is going to come and turn the people back to the Lord. There were some who believed Jesus was this Elijah, who had come to fulfill that prophecy. Jesus' miracles and his powerful teaching reminded them of the ministry of Elijah. But in actuality, it was John the Baptist who fulfilled that prophecy about Elijah. The angel who announced John's birth to his father Zechariah made that very clear. In Luke 1.17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only did the angel who announced John's birth say it was he who was coming to fulfill this prophecy, Elijah, Jesus himself said this very thing in Matthew eleven fourteen. So some people thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Some thought he was Elijah. And here's the third view. Some thought he was one of the prophets. Verse 15. 
Others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, it actually says that some people believed Jesus was Jeremiah. Others thought he was just a prophet like one of the prophets of old, another one of the same kind, the ones God had sent years before. Some people thought Jesus was one sent by God simply to deliver God's word to the people. Listen, and there is a measure of truth in that. But it does fall short of the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is indeed one sent by God to preach the truth and proclaim the word of the Lord, but He is so much more than that. What I want you to see by looking at all these different opinions and views of who Jesus was is that there was just a lot of confusion about who Jesus really was. Many years ago, I had a conversation with a man whose name, if I called, some of you would probably know. He was a member of a Southern Baptist church in Columbia. His exact words to me were this, Paul, do you know what's wrong with the church? He said, they worship Jesus like he's God. I was stunned. I said, Bruce, he is God. This is a man who had publicly professed faith and been baptized and was a member of a Southern Baptist church. Yet he did not believe Jesus was God. How does that happen? Listen, we cannot take for granted that people know the truth about who Jesus is. Confusion abounds. In our efforts to penetrate the culture with the message of the gospel, we will encounter people with a multitude of opinions about who they believe Jesus to be. He, he was a great moral teacher. He was the spiritual leader similar to Gandhi or Muhammad. He was a deranged man with a death wish. He was a great man sent by God, but not himself God. Some will embrace his moral teachings, but will deny his atoning death. Some will say that he died for sin, but he did not actually have a divine nature. Some will say, like Martin Luther King Jr., that his resurrection was not a physical bodily resurrection. You will even meet some who will say he is just a myth. What I'm telling you is we must be prepared to respond to the confusion with clarity and conviction. Jesus is the virgin-born Son of the living God. Jesus is truly God and truly man at the same time. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life in obedience to God's righteous commands. Jesus died on the cross as a penal substitute for all who would believe in Him. Jesus rose physically and bodily from the dead on the third day. Jesus ascended to heaven to take His seat at the Father's right hand in the place of power and authority. 
Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish the eternal kingdom of God in all its fullness. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by Him. What I'm saying to you today is we must not hesitate we must not equivocate. We have to be prepared to stand flat-footed and look the world in the eye and proclaim truth into the confusion. But you can just expect, friends, that when you take the gospel into this unbelieving world, you're going to face confusion. And you have to be prepared to confront it with the truth. The first sobering reality we must be prepared to face as we engage in ministry in a culture of unbelief is confusion about Jesus. The second sobering reality is in verses 16 through 20. Be prepared to face persecution for righteousness. Be prepared to face persecution for righteousness. Herod himself, it says in verse 16, embraced the view that it was Jesus who was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why did Herod believe this? Because of his guilty conscience. You see, Herod was the one who had John the Baptist arrested and executed. And his guilty conscience plagued him and he thought Jesus was John come back from the dead. Well, the question is, why would Herod arrest John the Baptist? Verse 17, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Okay, the reason for John's arrest goes back to Herod's marriage to Herodias. There were multiple problems with this marriage. For one, Herodias was Herod's niece. Secondly, she was already married to Herod's half-brother, Philip. Herod Philip. John publicly condemned Herod for both incest and adultery. You see, for the Jews, this marriage had multiple problems. It was contrary to God's law for a number of reasons. First of all, the law did not allow a man to marry his brother's wife if his brother was still living. Secondly, the law did not allow a woman to divorce her husband. And Herod had forced Herodias to divorce Philip before he would take her as his wife. So this marriage was against the law of God for two different reasons. See, here's the problem. Herod knows how popular John is with the Jewish people. He knows how great John's influence was. And Herod is afraid that John preaching against him might turn the Jewish people against him. You understand? John the Baptist was a threat to his authority. He was a danger to Herod's regime. Why did Herod arrest John? To silence him. 
So he arrested John and had him put in prison, verse 17. Verse 19 tells us that Herodias, Herod's wife, had it in for John. She wants him dead. She holds a grudge. Verse 20, it tells us Herod protected John. He even had a measure of respect for John, it says in verse 20. You might even say he feared John to some extent. He knew John was a godly man, but he had to silence John. He didn't want to kill him, he just wanted to shut him up. So he didn't undermine his authority with the Jewish people. Here's the bottom line. John was a righteous man preaching against sin and it got him in trouble. Josh Alexander was suspended from school last November over comments made about gender in class. He was told he couldn't return to school until he recanted of the things he said. Well, when he did come back to class, the vice principal promptly met him with two local police officers who arrested him and charged him with trespassing. This is what Josh said. It was about male students using female bathrooms, gender dysphoria, and male breastfeeding. Everyone was sharing their opinions on it. Any student who wanted to was participating, including the teacher. I said there were only two genders, and you were born either a male or a female, and that got me in trouble. And then I said that gender doesn't trump biology. A lawyer representing Josh said that the school won't let him attend class until he agreed not to use the dead name of any transgender student. That means you're not allowed to call them their given name the name they had before they changed genders, you have to call them by their new name. So he couldn't come back to school until he agreed not to use the former name of transgender students, and he had to agree to exclude himself from his two afternoon classes because in those classes were two transgender students who disapproved of Josh's religious beliefs. What's going on here? Well, it's the same thing that happened with Herod and John the Baptist. It's an effort to silence those who stand and speak righteousness. It's the same thing. Can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the clear teachings of Scripture tell us there are only two genders. Genesis chapter 1, God created them male and female. Homosexuality is morally wrong and sin. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6. Sex outside the marital union of one man and one woman is morally wrong and sin. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6. Amen, preacher. Can I tell you something today? God's Word is the authority for what is right and wrong, not society and not public opinion. 
God's Word is the authority for what is true and what is false, not public education, not secular experts. Now, I need to say this, you and I are not to be harsh and argumentative. We are called to preach and practice righteousness. We must not be hypocrites who preach but don't practice, but we also cannot be silent. And here's just the sobering reality. When we practice and preach righteousness in a culture that is steeped in unbelief, there will be those who will do anything in their power to silence us. And it's happening now. You may as well get ready for it. We are called to be lights in the darkness. Right? But you have to remember something. The darkness hates the light. John chapter 7 verse 7. Jesus said to the world. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The darkness hates the light. We cannot be friends with the world and serve God at the same time. James chapter 4 verse 4. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. You understand this, church. You can mark it down. When we stand for righteousness, we will be persecuted. But let us not forget what Jesus said in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, persecution for righteousness is a sobering reality that we must be prepared to face if we're going to engage in ministry in a culture of unbelief. Now I want to show you the third sobering reality we should be prepared to face. It's in verses 21 through 29. And here it is. Be prepared to face the possibility of death. Well, when we come to verse 21, we find Herod throws himself one whiz-bang of a birthday party. He invites all of the political officials who serve under him. He invites all of his top military commanders, all of the wealthy, prominent men of his territory, all gather, the men of influence. Part of the entertainment for the evening was Herod's stepdaughter. Her name was Salome. The word girl, verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and King Herod said to the girl, that word girl, uh, it describes a girl who is young, not older than 12. When we think of her doing this dance, we imagine some seductive dance. That's probably not what happened given her young age. But in any case, it says that she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. They were delighted as this girl danced. And they were no doubt well into the wine by this point. 
So notice what Herod says to the girl. Verse 22, Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. He swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Extravagant gifts um, were, also, were often given to successful entertainers as a way of displaying your wealth. So this wasn't unusual for somebody like Herod, you know, to give extravagant gifts to great entertainers, to entertainers who had done a good job. It was a way they flaunted their money. Now, in reality, we have to remember something. Herod was a governor under Emperor Tiberius. And in, in truth, he wasn't authorized to give away even one inch of his territory because it wasn't his. He was governor over it, but the emperor was Tiberius. But in any case, he makes this grand offer to the girl to give her whatever she wants. You'll notice what the girl does. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? Now we remember verse 19. When you look back in verse 19, it's where you remember it said Herodias wanted John dead. Now's her chance. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod didn't want to execute John. He just wanted to silence him. But all of his political officials, all of his top military commanders, all of the wealthy, prominent, affluent men from his territory, they all had heard the oath he made to this girl. If he backed out now, he would lose face before all of them. And Herod was simply unwilling to allow that to happen. So, Herod sent an executioner to the prison and had John the Baptist beheaded. The head was brought to the girl on a platter. The girl quickly brought it to her mother. And verse 29 records the sad ending to the life of John the Baptist. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. I want to remind you of something that Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said there was no greater prophet, no greater man of God than John the Baptist. And this is his end one Bible commentator said it like this, The one whom Jesus called the greatest man born of woman is sacrificed to a cocktail wager. Execution at the hands of godless men also awaited all of the apostles with the possible exception of the apostle John. And since them, thousands upon thousands 
of God-fearing Christian saints have been killed for their faith. More Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century than in all 19 previous centuries combined. Listen, if we want to live for Christ as these great people of God did, we must be prepared to die for Christ as these great people of God did. You may or may not know the name William Tyndale. Tyndale House is a publishing group that publishes Bibles. William Tyndale, his translation of the Bible was the first English Bible translated directly from the Hebrew and Greek. It was the first English translation that was able to take advantage of the printing press long before King James ever had a translation made. It was the first of the new English translations that came out during the Protestant Reformation. But, in those days, the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on the religious world. And the, and the, the laws of England maintained the Catholic Church's stranglehold. So, when Tyndale published his translation, it was seen as a direct challenge to the Catholic Church and the laws of England. Now, the reality is the work of William Tyndale proved to be key. It, it played a key role in spreading Reformation teachings across the English-speaking world, eventually across the entire British Empire. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you don't realize it, but we owe a lot to Tyndale and his great work of getting the Bible into English, into the hands of English-speaking people. What was the cost to him personally? In 1535, William Tyndale was arrested and jailed in the castle at Filford outside of Brussels, Belgium. He's locked up for over a year. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy against the Catholic Church. He was executed by strangulation. And then his body was burned at the stake. Mark chapter 8 verse 34 says this. Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes... To come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I wonder if you realize what take up your cross means. It means if you are going to follow Jesus, you must be willing to lose your life. Can I tell you, when Jesus spoke of a cross, a cross was only one thing in his day. 
It was an instrument of execution. We speak of the cross metaphorically as a religious symbol. We talk about your cross to bear, some difficulty is your cross to bear. None of that was relevant in Jesus' time. What he was telling these people is, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to march to your electric chair every day. You have to approach every day with that willingness. Now I know, it's hard for us to imagine Christians being killed in America. But it is a reality this very day in many places in this world. And it's a reality that you and I have to be willing to face. Let me say it to you as clear as I know how. If your life is more precious to you than your Lord, you will never be able to penetrate an unbelieving culture with the gospel. If your life is more precious to you than your Lord, you will never have any impact in this world for the gospel. What did Jesus say? He who saves his life will lose it. Now, I'm not telling you that engaging this unbelieving culture with the gospel will cost you your life. I'm telling you that it could. And that's a price you have to be willing to pay. Michael Nadi was a Nigerian student studying at Good Shepherd Seminary in Kaduna State, Nigeria. On the evening of January the 8th, 2020, an armed gang who were disguised in military fatigues, they breached the gate of the school and they grabbed four students, including Michael, and they made their escape. By the end of the month, three of the four boys had been freed, but not Michael. A few days later, he was found dead. His body had been dumped on the side of the road. He was massacred by his kidnappers. Michael's twin brother, Raphael, spoke to the Nigerian press on the week of what would have been their 19th birthday. He saluted the path of faith and service that his brother had taken. And this is what his brother said. Michael was so much committed and loved the things of God. My consolation is that he did not die in vain, pursuing the things of the world, but rather he died in service to God, training for the ministry. What remained a mystery to everyone was why the other three had been released, but Michael had been killed. Nobody knew for sure until April the 30th of 2020. That's the day the man arrested for the murder, Mustafa Mohammed, was interviewed in prison by a Nigerian newspaper. So why did Mustafa kill Michael? He openly and even arrogantly told the press these exact words. He did not allow me any peace. He just kept preaching to me his gospel. I did not like the confidence he displayed in his faith, and I decided to send him to an early grave. 
Listen to what I'm saying to you this morning. When we seek to penetrate an unbelieving culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be prepared to face some sobering realities. Confusion about Jesus, persecution for righteousness, and the possibility of death. My prayer for this church is that we would be fully aware of these realities and still choose to do what Michael did, keep preaching the gospel. Let's pray.